Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.bc. Thank you for joining us today for the BIOS podcast. We are absolutely thrilled to welcome Chad Merkin, Director of the International Institute for Nanotechnology, and George B. Reithman, Professor of Chemistry at Northwestern to the show. Chad, thank you once again for joining us. To help host this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Drew Yashar, and special guest, Adam Margolin, CEO of Flashpoint Therapeutics. Adam, can you give our listeners a brief background on yourself and on Flashpoint? Yeah, thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. So the common thread in my career has always been pursuing approaches that could have an outsized impact towards curing cancer and always through a lens of leveraging advanced technologies that are somewhat out of the mainstream thinking. Uh, I pursued this for 15 years in academia, which led to some exciting opportunities ranging up to uh, leading a 700 person department at uh, Mount Sinai. But I decided that moving to the biotech side of the fence would give an opportunity to have a bigger, faster impact to getting drugs directly to cancer patients. So for the last two years, uh, two plus years, I've had roles at Coastal Ventures and uh, starting a cell therapy company called NextVivo. And after talking with Chad about the concept behind Flashpoint, I decided this represented the most exciting opportunity I've seen to have a real impact in the lives of cancer patients through a new therapeutic approach. And the concept behind Flashpoint is that cancer immunotherapies, including vaccines, have really only focused on half the picture, which is defining the components of therapies, but not how they're structured to work together. And over the last 10 years, Chad has developed a nucleic acid nanostructure technology that allows precise co-delivery of multiple therapeutic components with precise control of their stoichiometries, structural orientation, and kinetics of target activation, which can optimize um, triggering multiple pathways in single cells to simultaneously uh, activate the required multi-pronged response to mount an immune response against cancer. And this approach has transformed the same therapeutic components from being ineffective to curative in mice. And we founded Flashpoint to bring the same benefit to cancer patients. An absolutely incredible mission and one we're excited to dive deeper into today. Before we get there, Chad, can you help kick things off for us by rewinding the clock and sharing a little bit more about your background and maybe providing a career overview? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I, I look, I grew up all over the world. I was uh, the uh, fourth uh, son of, of, a, of a couple that uh, really never found what they wanted to do in life and kept moving us every year of my existence until I was about 11, ended up in Pennsylvania, went to school there, ended up going to a small school called Dickinson College. Uh, got me excited about chemistry after my three other brothers had chosen uh, uh, different scientific uh, professions, physics, uh, biology, and, and uh, uh, geology. I always say I got chemistry by default, uh, but then moved uh, to MIT uh, to do a postdoc and got really the bug for doing chemistry in a, in a really big way, and then started my career at, at Northwestern 31 years ago and have never looked back. And we're excited to dive into that career now. But before we do, and as you've talked about, there have been a number of different facets to your experiences. We'd love to get a sense of what your North Star has been. 
the common thread that has tied your work together? Well, I mean, it, it's it's first and foremost about scientific discovery. I say, you know, all, all technology is based first and foremost on on uh, new understandings, um, and and that's why I love nanotech. That's why I I, I decided to to make it my passion in life, uh, because everything when miniaturized is new. Everything has new properties, and figuring out why the structure has new properties because of this dimensional reduction is really the key to nanotech and developing the tools that allow you to do that or to make those types of structures routinely is critical. Um, so that became kind of the mantra of the group. So it starts with discovery and then it became problem solving. When we understand why something is different, how can we use it to, to solve major problems in the world? And then the third part is creating technologies that make lives better. And whether it's in medicine, biodiagnostics, development of clean energy uh, platforms or additive manufacturing, we've kind of been driven by that mantra. And to dive into those exciting topics further, SNAs and the current state of nanotechnology, I'm gonna pass it off to Drew and Adam. Take it away. Thank you so much, Chad and Adam, again, for joining us. We're so excited to dive in here. Chad, your lab at Northwestern has pursued developing methods for controlling the architecture of molecules at the smallest of scales with the most innovative forms of nanotechnology we've seen. Uh, with that understanding, you and your team have utilized such structures to create novel tools that have been applied to a variety of areas, including chemical and biological sensing, gene regulation, immunomodulation, lithography, catalysis optics, and the list goes on. So many amazing things. As a pioneer of this field, we truly love to understand more about the tools and platforms you develop to enable and advance the design, build, test, iterate field itself of nanotechnology. But first, before we dive in, can you tell us more about the history of nanotechnology itself? Well, yeah, look, nanotech has its origins uh, really in science fiction, right? A lot of the science fiction writers were talking about nanotechnology 100 years ago. And even some of the early productions in Hollywood, uh, uh, Isaac Asimov's Fantastic Voyage is a good example, talked about how miniaturization, creating nanorobotic systems, being able to take somebody and shrink them and put them into the bloodstream to solve problems. It's always been on the forefront of science fiction. Uh, you could say, though, that it started way before that. If you go into medieval times and even into Roman times, ancients understood that certain materials had fantastic properties when miniaturized. Uh, for example, the, 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 the red colors in, in stained glass windows in Canterbury Cathedral, that comes from tiny gold particles, uh, not the gold that you and I are familiar with, but, but nano gold. Uh, they didn't know it was nano gold, but they knew that if they process glass in a certain way with these types of contaminants, uh, that it could get this beautiful hue that would stand the test of time. It wouldn't photo bleach like the organic dyes in our clothing. There are many examples of that throughout history where it was used primarily for cosmetic type purposes. Now you get to the modern age of nanotech, which was really enabled through the invention of tools, tools that allowed us to see atoms for the first time when I went to school high school, you were told you couldn't see atoms. Well, that's not true anymore. We have things called sc scanning tunneling microscopes that allow us to feel and effectively see atoms uh, and move atoms one at a time, which is amazing. Electron microscopes, uh, all sorts of powerful tools that have dramatically changed how we study materials have uh, enabled the modern age of nanotechnology. Then you have chemistry. So, so chemists are not nanotechnologists. They actually work on a scale smaller than nanotechnology. Uh, this scale is really the scale of biology. But chemists play a huge role because being able to take different components and put them together 
to form larger structures that are multifunctional is a big part of the nanotech game, especially as it applies to medicine. And uh, speaking of these these tools and applications, really a base for much of your future work began in 1996 when you developed the first spherical forms of nucleic acids using a template of gold nanoparticles and short strands of DNA, leading to the discovery of spherical nucleic acids, SNAs, as, as they were abbreviated. Can you describe SNAs and tell us more about the story behind this discovery? Well, it's kind of an interesting story, and, and I, think, I think it's an important lesson because you know we weren't trying to develop a new form of nucleic acids. We were actually trying to think about building ways to build materials or create ways of building materials uh, using new building blocks. Instead of atoms, we could use particles. And instead of electron-based bonds, we could use DNA as connectors, little Lego-type structures that could be assembled then based upon the base pairing schemes of DNA. And so the first phase was of that was to learn how to take particles, gold particles in this case, and modify them with DNA. Uh, and along the way, we found out not only is this a great way of, of building materials in new ways, which is an entire new field that, that, that focuses on that, but this represents a form of DNA and RNA that is fundamentally different from the natural forms, the linear forms that we're familiar with, and, and frankly, any other folded form. And so what you have is a structure made through chemistry, made through nanoscience, made of the same components that we know. Uh, you can make DNA strands in the course of an afternoon. You can make nanoparticles in about 15 minutes. A structure that's been arranged on a, a spherical template, hence the term spherical nucleic acid, that on a sequence-for-sequence -sequence basis is completely different from its linear cousins. And those differences are where a lot of the science is, and we've spent decades now trying to understand what those differences are. And then the technology comes from applying those differences to developing technologies, medicines that can uh, impact the masses and diagnostic tools. So, so the Veragene system, which was commercialized first by Nanosphere, bought by Luminex and bought by Diasorin, is, is used in over half the world's top hospitals. It's all based upon work that we did in, in, in or I think, right around 2000, uh, uh, shortly after the, the, the first uh, publication on uh, the way to make spherical nucleic acids. And now today we have medicines in the clinic that have been used to treat anything ranging from glioblastoma multiform, a deadly form of brain cancer, uh, to uh, skin diseases, to a wide variety of cancers, which is really uh, much of the topic today, uh, in particular, the development of, of a, a powerful new cancer vaccines. That's fantastic. and appreciate the uh, overview of the current state of the technology. Um, considering the grander impact that SNAs have had on your lab and, and within the clinic overall, as you mentioned, what do you see as really the future of this technology or what's kind of ahead? I, I think that it, it, it is going to redefine how we use nucleic acids in general in medicine. And the reason is very simple. Spherical nucleic acids have this property that they get into many different cell types without the need for co-carriers. Uh, nucleic acids do not naturally enter your cells. Uh, for that reason, people that want to use nucleic acids either as diagnostic probes or as, as therapeutic entities have to create materials that can co-deliver uh, the, the, the nucleic acids into the cells. In this case, the structure of the spherical nucleic acid is naturally recognized by cells. That's one of the different properties and rapidly internalized. And what that means is you can get lots of nucleic acid into cells, into tissues without toxic co-carriers. That's a big plus. 
Uh, and uh, you can use that to begin to manipulate what goes on in cells so that you can regulate and, and, and protect against disease or, or to treat existing disease. Thank you again for the, the overview. It's, it's so inspiring and we will gladly look along from the sidelines. Super excited to see the future of the tech itself. Something in parallel on a different topic that I wanted to speak with you, Chad, which was super fascinating about starting in 2000, under your leadership, Northwestern University made the bold strategic decision to establish the International Institute for Nanotechnology. The INN became the first and largest institute of its kind in the United States, representing now currently more than a billion in nanotechnology research, educational programs, supporting infrastructure, and 28 spinouts based on INN research. What, what was the original vision behind your work in developing this institute? Well, it's kind of funny. We, we were originally thinking about just uh, 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 creating a, a vision for creating another arm of chemistry. And, and, and we began to talk to a lot of the people that were going to raise the money, and they said, well, you need something to rally around. And we first, I think, said, let's let's build a genomics center. And they said, oh, I've been there, done that, that's old. And then we started thinking about what we had that was special at Northwestern. And it turned out we had critical mass at the time, which wasn't common around the world, of people that were really interested in these consequences of miniaturization, looking at how things are different. And so we got the idea, let's, let's build this entity based upon the concept of a nanotechnology center, not thinking about the eye and not thinking about building something that's going to span across the campus the way it does today, but something that would really uh, uh, enrich chemistry. But then along the way, literally within the first 12 to 18 minutes, we said, wait, no, we, we are missing an opportunity here. And this is, I think, an important part of, of life and building a career and building anything. Uh, uh, this can have much bigger impact. Let's bring in all the scientists, all the engineers, even the folks from Kellogg and the folks in the medical school, and begin to bring uh, uh, together the network to discover, uh, to translate, um, and, and, and to create technologies that, that can impact the masses. Uh, and so that was really the story of the IA. And we started very small and, and, and we're very persistent. I had a great partner, a, a guy named Mark Ratner, uh, who helped me with this. Uh, but I also had some uh, fantastic administrators that bought into the vision, a guy named Henry Beenan, who was the president here uh, uh, three presidents ago. Um, he, he, he got it immediately. And you know, I said, look, you know, it's rare to be in a situation where you can build an entity that allows you to be the best and first. You can be the best, but not first if, if chronologically you're late, right? But we could be, because it was just starting, we, we were in a prime position uh, to do it right. And if we do that, It'll pay huge dividends to Northwestern, um, and and we did, um, and I, I think most people would say uh, the bet was well placed. And now running for almost two decades uh, over at this point, how has this vision really evolved over time, and and what do you really see as the the next step, the future for INN? Well, it was it was incredible. It was it was originally geared towards uh, basic science. With a link to, to medicine on the biodiagnostic and then the therapeutic side of things. And over time, though, it evolved to really include uh, developing inroads into uh, a quantum science, into clean energy, uh, into additive manufacturing, into the general production of tools that fuel the nanotech revolution around the world. So, you know, some of our startups have, 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 are just instrument companies and, and they're an important part of 
you know, not just the the translation, but but of the IIN as well. I think of all the companies as uh, outlets of, of what we do. They, they they are kind of the exclamation point uh, on everything we do at the university. So we've always tried to keep a really close connection between the university and the companies. Northwestern has been really progressive in that regard, very proactive, uh, allowing us to you know manage conflicts and 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 keep strong interactions so that we give all the startup companies maximum chance for success. Thanks, Chad. And you, you mentioned previously that the creating and developing the, uh, the IAN could not have come at a better time with President Clinton uh, just enacting a reform that invested almost half a billion dollars into nanotechnology research in the same year the IAN was founded. So for startups and academia, both are heavily influenced by timing and execution, especially when there's a translational component such as much of the work the IIN does, as well as your lab. So can you share a bit more about how you think about these two subjects, uh, timing and execution, in relation to the projects you work on going forward within the IIN? Oh, it, it's it's critical. critical. I mean, the, 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 you have to understand, at the time, uh, Clinton announces that, that we're going to start the National Nanotech Initiative, uh, the NNI. Um, and, and it wasn't just a half a billion, it was a half a billion for the first year. It was 1.2 to 1.5 billion every year thereafter. And it went on for over a decade. Um, so we were building the world's first uh, uh, federally funded nanotech center at Northwestern right when he announces this. Uh, so timing was perfect. Uh, not so different from, from a lot of companies, too. Um, you, you know, the, being uh, with the right technology at the right point in time, with the right resources, uh, with the right team uh, is, is really central to, to success in startup companies as well. And so we had a great team. Uh, we, we had all the different parties uh, coming together uh, with a shared vision. Uh, and uh, we had a, a building uh, that was going to be the focal point. And then we also had this tremendous investment by the federal government um, that uh, ultimately put us in a position to compete for a lot of those resources. And we won almost every competition we went after. Great. And based on that, what do you see is coming next that you're most excited about for the future of the IAN? Well, we're pushing heavily uh, three areas. Uh, one, one is is the, the development of, of cancer vaccines through rational vaccinology. Um, th this idea that you articulated well, the structure matters, that it's not just the components of a vaccine, but how you put them together that either leads to uh, e efficacy or lack thereof. Uh, we, we have a whole arm uh, that is focused on uh, the development of, of clean energy. We've developed uh, nanotech tools that allow you to synthesize literally billions of materials uh, in a single shot on a chip. Uh, much like gene chips, but at much higher densities and with a lot more materials, uh, which allows you to look at the materials discovery space in a way that it's never been looked at before. Uh, that turns out to be a play both in terms of materials discovery, but also AI, because these represent uh, huge uh, uh, data sets, first party data sets that can be used to inform AI for materials discovery. There's a company called MatIQ or Matik uh, that, that is focusing on developing that. Uh, and then we also have a, a big push in, in the additive manufacturing space. It's kind of ironic, you know, our, our, our discoveries have all been around nanotech, uh, but one of those discoveries actually led to the largest and fastest 3D printer ever invented. It came from a nanotech discovery, but we translated in the lab how that discovery could be used to produce 
materials and structures faster than anybody else had done before. And that turns out to be a big deal in the manufacturing space. That's fantastic, Chad. Uh, Want to take a quick halftime here to discuss a few rapid fire questions. Some things we're excited to ask about uh, midway through the episode here. Uh, you recently summarized a quote from Richard Feynman, uh, arguably in, in your words from the same thought leadership piece, uh, the founder of nanotechnology, really stating, if you can't teach it to others, you don't understand it. Uh, could you tell us more about what this quote and this mentality means to you? I think anybody who has ever taught a class understands that. You know, I've taught general chemistry. I taught it for 30 years. This is the first year I haven't taught it. Um, and I have to say that every year I taught it, I learned something new. I became a better teacher because I knew more. Uh, the, the more you know about a subject, the more you've thought about how you can communicate it, uh, the, the better you can teach it. And, and a lot of people, I think, uh, generally know things about their field, but they don't really have a depth that's required to really deliver it at the highest level. Uh, and and uh, I think that's what he's getting at. Uh, th that's a cop out to say this is too complicated that I can't teach it. Uh, and, and I just don't think science uh, is that difficult to learn. And I don't think it should be that difficult. It takes some hard work. Uh, you you got to want to do it. If you don't want to do it, you, you know, if you don't have a willing uh, listener, <laughs> uh, they're not going to learn anything. But if you uh, want to roll up your sleeves and do it, uh, most people have the intellect to do it and do it at a pretty high level. Um, and, and a lot of it is is just a fear of jargon, a, a fear of, of uh, uh, using words that they don't ordinarily use and, and talking about new concepts that they don't, don't ordinarily talk about. But it's just not that difficult. And I think if, if you really know it, you can teach it. How do you think about that same quote uh, for the academic entrepreneurs out there? You know, how do you think about explaining research succinctly in relation to raising capital, maybe for some folks that aren't as technical or everything out there? I think it's absolutely essential. Uh, Adam and I, in starting Flashpoint, we spent probably at least three months together. He'll probably correct me, maybe more. Um, uh, first of all, making sure that he understood everything that we had done before. Uh, then breaking down the story and putting it together in a way that was informative, quantitative, not just loosey-goosey in terms of facts, um, uh, but laid out the case. Uh, for why this is needed, why it's going to be a game changer, uh, and and why it makes sense on the business side of things. Uh, if you, you can't convince yourself and convince your whole team that you've got a great idea, you're not going to convince others, or uh, you're not going to convince a lot of, of smart others, let's put it that way. So so we, we take that very, very seriously. We, before we go out on the road, we, we put together a a really strong case for what we want to do, both on the on the technological side of things and the business side of things. And then we go out and try to execute. Chad, in, in 2010, you were listed as the most cited chemist in the world and most cited nano medicine researcher in the world. Um, how do you think about setting up this kind of flywheel of innovation as someone who's able to maintain this kind of status as a pioneer in the field? It's kind of funny that that actually happened because uh, 15 years prior to that, I was sitting in an office at Harvard. Very famous chemist told me about the importance of citations. And um, I had never heard of citations before. I'd never, this was just wasn't a big deal back then. And of course he thought it was a big deal, which made me say, um, I'm going to guess you're highly cited. And it turns out he was, he was top five. <laughs> and, 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 uh, 
I, I went back immediately at the time and I began to look up a lot of the people I really respected that were on, on the cusp of something really big, that at least that I thought was really big. And they were all, all low, low sighted uh, 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 scientists. Um, you, you, you fast forward then 10 years later, if we build this operation and then you, you end up number one. Of course, I shared with a guy from Harvard shortly after that. Um, but the, the, the lesson there is that uh, you don't just pursue things because of, of citations. You pursue things because they're interesting. And if they are interesting and exciting, people are going to follow and people are going to cite. We've never looked back. Uh, and, and, and we continue to drive many different fields based upon our discoveries. And, uh, you know, I, I let things like citations fall where they may. Um, uh, but we, we've always been in the, in, in the conversation. And what advice would you give to people at the frontier of innovation who are looking to evangelize and promote their work to gain the kind of traction that you have? I think it starts, first of all, make sure you have a real discovery and, and something that is technologically impactful and, and it has a market. Uh, make sure you create the plan that we talked about, work with a team that knows uh, something about uh, doing this and, and, and it, don't be afraid to to get a lot of, of, of input, both positive and negative. You learn from the negatives. Uh, I always say advice is always good. You don't have to listen to everything. You don't have to act on everything, but but ignoring it is is not very smart. Uh, and that's true in science, it's true in business. Um, so, so, so make sure you don't just preach to the converted. Uh, uh, talk to the naysayers, find out what, the, what the, the, the potential problems are. It gives you a chance to think about how you might solve those problems or clarify that they're not problems. And then uh, to, to go back to the, the Feynman situation, make sure you really understand it in a way that you can present it uh, to scientifically competent or, or just smart, uh, interested uh, investor types uh, so that they understand what you're trying to do is important, uh, technologically relevant, uh, and has a real market. Thanks again so much, Chad. We're going to hop into topic three here, really to discuss more about rational vaccinology and flashpoint therapeutics. In essence, to begin with here, uh, a major theme of your work in recent years, Chad, has been the concept of rational vaccinology. To begin with, Adam, can we just start here while we're on the topic of flashpoint therapeutics? What really attracted you to the concept of rational vaccinology in general? Well, the concept just captured my imagination in terms of potential. And the idea is that um, cancer therapies have really only focused on half of the picture, which is defining just the components of therapy, but not how they work together. And I think the best way to illustrate this concept is actually by an analogy. And that's, imagine that you were in a war and there was an attack drone that's coming over your head and the weapons you have are 10 sticks of dynamite and 10 igniters. So you think your best move is that you just throw them up in the air and hope that one stick of dynamite and one igniter just happen to come together at the right time next to the drone and trigger an explosion. Now that might work sometimes, but I would not want to bet my life on that strategy and cancer patients shouldn't bet their life either on strategies that work like that, which is in fact how cancer vaccines are currently uh, currently made. So if that attack drone was coming at me, I sure wish there would be a way to couple the dynamite and igniter to a laser guided missile that would put them both right in the cockpit and trigger their explosion in exactly the right time. And the concept behind Flashpoint is to bring to patients a technology that in much the same way has transformed the same components from being ineffective to up to curative in mice. And the technology actually works really the same way as that analogy with the drone. And Chad has created a uh, powerful uh, platform using nucleic acid nanostructures that can allow precise control 
of the nanoscale spacing, the structure, and the kinetics of target activation of multiple uh, components of a therapy. And we can optimize these structures in order to trigger the multi-pronged uh, pathway activation that's necessary to mount an effective immune response against cancer. Uh, this is, you know, the more I learned about the field, this seemed to be really what was missing from bringing cancer vaccines into the mainstream, that vaccines could not incorporate structure. We're able to do that now. Uh, we've shown that by doing that, uh, we can transform vaccines to be up to curative in mice. And our mission, why I dove fully into, into Flashpoint, is it was just so compelling to bring this potential uh, to cancer patients that, um, you know, really could could be a game changer in the fields of, of how cancer vaccines are made. And uh, Chad, with that lead in, um, I'd love to hear how you think about the concept of, of rational vaccinology as this has been really a focus of, uh, of your work in, in recent years. And um, uh, how would you describe to the audience the potential and what the idea means? Well, I like to think of it as, as distilled down to two things. First, structure matters, which you articulated well. And the second is that timing may be everything, because that structure can control the timing of those signaling events. And if you don't have control over that, you are throwing darts at the dartboard in the dark. Uh, and, and, and so we're in a position now uh, to use nanotechnology and modular forms of nanostructures to screen very rapidly the right architectures uh, to give you maximum efficacy. And uh, I would say that, you know, we, we've looked now at, at, at nine different uh, animal models, seven different forms of cancer, and there has not been a single example where we can't move from the ineffective to curative side of the scale, in many cases curative, uh, which is pretty exciting. Uh, and that includes uh, components that in the past have failed failed in clinical trials because they were not using structure. So if we take those same components and run them head to head against a structured vaccine, a flashpoint vaccine, those structures significantly outperform what we call the admix. I, I, I love the description of the underlying technology here, folks. And while we both have you on the line here, uh, so something I'm thinking of while I like this back and forth, I mean, really a, a key step in, in forming a company is, is finding the right partnership between the academic founder and the CEO. Uh, Chad and Adam would just love to hear the origin story in between you both to really build Flashpoint. Uh, could you start, Chad? Yeah, I'd say first and foremost, and I'd use this as a rule uh, of advice to everybody, I, I won't work with anybody I don't like, and I like Adam a lot. Uh, we didn't know each other prior to this. Uh, he, he reached out. He was looking for, for new opportunities, new technologies that might have impact, um, spent time uh, talking with me about you know, my vision, and then did all the hard work. Uh, he read every single paper, understood every, uh, every detail. Uh, he, there's a great give and take uh, between us. Uh, uh, we don't always fully agree on, 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 on the right approach, but we always get to the right answer. Um, and that's such an important thing. I mean, you, 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 my wife doesn't like to hear this, but you sometimes spend more time with the CEO of your company than your spouse uh, in the starting of these companies. Um, and and, and uh, it's critical that you, you really get along and, and uh, are, are joined at the hip, so to speak, in terms of trying to drive this horse across the finish line. And I've always felt with Adam that we've, we've got a phenomenal team. And then all the other people that we've surrounded ourselves with, I think, are also quite fantastic but also people that, that I really enjoy working with that I think are, have high integrity, uh, high IQ, 
uh, and are, are motivated to 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 develop a company that will one will make money, but two will have a huge impact uh, in terms of of impacting patients. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Chad. I, I certainly agree. Um, in the course of our our discussions prior to forming the company, it was clear we just saw eye to eye in terms of how we build a, a, a platform therapeutics company that you know really just naturally led uh, into diving um, fully into into doing this. Uh, my own exploration started with the premise of wanting to build a company in the nanotechnology space. I thought this was an area really of untapped potential for cancer therapy relative to uh, some of the other um, modalities uh, that, that the field is more focused on. And uh, in, in one regard, many of the roads in, in uh, discussing the nanotechnology field led to Chad. And um, I was just uh, super impressed by the, the breadth of, of work behind Flashpoint, you know, the concept, as I mentioned, captured my imagination in terms of doing something really new and really, you know, with the potential to make a, a broad-based disruptive impact in, 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 a, in the cancer therapy arena uh, that we can bring to patients in a, in a relatively short time frame. And uh, you know, Chad mentioned I, I read all the papers, 20 or so papers that he's written on the, on the topic and uh, just the amount of of data and work that's gone behind this was um, you know more than I've seen from from other companies that that have uh, that have been launched from an academic lab. You know, there's ten years of work that have all really shown the same the same key points, which is that incorporating structure into the design of a drug uh, gives market advantages in all of the key areas needed to mount a response against uh, immune response against tumors. Uh, leading to transforming their efficacy in mice to being up to curative. And, you know, this has been supported by a decade of work, um, different people, different tumor types, different models, uh, you know, different uh, areas of cancer. And they all, you know, gave that consistent premise to the point where you know, I was convinced scientifically that, um, you know, the benefit was well-founded and, uh, you know, was real. And was the basis of starting a company that you know really could have a, a uh, big impact in the real world by by focusing on bringing this to patients. So, you know, as we as we talked, as Chad and I talked and and uh, saw eye to eye on the potential, it just became too captivating not to do. And um, ultimately, voted with my feet that uh, well, you know, on a on a mission, on a on a singular mission to to bring this technology to cancer patients within the coming years. So, uh, so I want to take a second to, and I don't often do this enough. He does it a lot about me, but I want to brag about him a little bit. Uh, I mean, Adam is a rare combination of, of, of uh, uh, or has a rare combination of talents. I mean, th there are very few people in this business uh, that have uh, excelled at the highest level at the university. Uh, youngest chaired professor, youngest chair of a department, oversaw big groups there and got them all to work well together. <laughs> and then went over to uh, the, the venture capital side of things and did it again in a very different venue. And so he has this understanding of, of both uh, the rigor of, of, of academic science, the rigor of industrial science, uh, and, and uh, the rigor of, of, of the venture capital world. Uh, and, and in my experience, I, I, I just have, have not run into many people like that. And, and if you look throughout history, uh, the, the, the folks that have people like that at the helm in startup companies tend to do quite well. Well, thank you, Chad. I appreciate that that confidence. And um, 
all I can say is that I'm all in on, on uh, trying to maximize the potential of this technology to bring it to patients. And I hope that background um, provides, provides a foundation for helping to do that. Um, on that topic, we've, uh, in the course of, of uh, brainstorming to, to found the company, one of the uh, main topics that we've discussed um, relates to the managing the balance of, of a, a platform company versus developing an internal pipeline. And um, I know that's a topic that's um, likely shared by, by many people who are pursuing similar uh, platform therapeutics type companies. So I'd love to get your perspective and bring the audience into some of these discussions and how you think about this balance and how we've navigated this question in terms of developing the strategy for, for Flashpoint. Well, I, I think that that I like platforms. Uh, uh, people have mixed views on them, but but platforms are good in the long run. Uh, it's the gift that keeps on giving uh, if if developed properly. And and the reason is one is you can partner. Um, so uh, in the early days, uh, we have room to partner with bigger companies that want to make their vaccines better. Uh, we can have our internal pipeline, which we do, of course. Uh, and the challenge really is, and, and I think whether you succeed or fail, uh, ultimately depends upon how you balance those, uh, because there will be failure. Uh, there, there will be learning along the way uh, and, and uh, getting resources from through partnerships with larger companies uh, and picking uh, the early bets that inform the most about the platform in the clinic uh, that give you the, the, the confidence to move forward, brings in additional investment and gives you the life uh, to really realize the full potential of the platform. But as I said, in this particular case, I, I think this is about really redefining how we make vaccines. You know, we've, we've gone through uh, uh, early vaccines, mix them up, inject them, hope they work. We're going through mRNA vaccines, worked well on the infectious disease side of things. I think it's probably going to work to some extent on the, on the uh, cancer side of things. That's great. Uh, but even those need structure. So being able to put together the right architectures that maximize efficacy is really what we're all about. And, and I, I think that's why, why betting on a platform is such an exciting thing to do. That's fantastic, folks. One last question on Flashpoint here. To your own words, what does life look like in an ideal world where Flashpoint realizes its full potential? Chad, why don't you kick it off? Look, uh, I, I got asked that on, on TV uh, about two weeks ago. Let me, let me tell you this. So, so, so let me step back a second. So, so, so uh, two weeks ago, this was featured on, on, on uh, uh, WGN News. Uh, these guys got it immediately and understood the impact of this. One of the questions was, will this negate the need for chemotherapy? Sure, certainly not in the short term. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of medications are going to be used in tandem. But uh, I think uh, it's inconceivable. Uh, that these types of structures will not significantly impact how we treat many forms of cancer. I think in certain cases, it will likely eradicate certain forms of cancer. You know, time will tell where we are in that, in that, in that, in that spectrum, but it's going to make life a lot better for cancer patients. Uh, I spoke uh, uh, 10 days ago at the Moffitt Cancer Center on Rational Vaccinology, one of the first talks I've given where I've kind of come out and talked uh, very vocally about this. And I was ready for the medical community to push back. I had the exact opposite reaction. Uh, and many people come and say, that, that was absolutely amazing. I, I can't believe people have not focused on structure before. And I said, it's not surprising because most of most vaccines have been developed by medical folks and, and chemical engineers, not chemists, not nanotechnologists. 
so that's the key of you know putting different groups together that matters. And then yesterday, I probably talked to the most critical audience, my own faculty at Northwestern, and and, and people got it immediately. It, it, it's it's it, it, this is not a shocker when, when when you talk to people. The shocker is that it hasn't been done before. Yeah, I. I agree. And the concept of cancer vaccines have has long been kind of a holy grail in the field. It's uh, you know, the lesson of the last decade has been that immunotherapies work for cancer and vaccines are really the most direct way of eliciting an immune response in patients against cancer. Um, so, you know, if the potential was met, the you know, cancer vaccine approach is really unparalleled in terms of benefits of breadth of application across tumor types, uh, ease of manufacturing, cost, safety, et cetera. But you know, it hasn't quite reached the required efficacy thresholds yet. And the concept behind Flashpoint and uh, supported by a, a mountain of in vivo evidence is that the reason why it hasn't reached that threshold is because the, all the approaches are just you know, throwing the dynamite and igniter in the air, hoping they randomly come together. Whereas if we have a technology that can focus on their structural presentation, co-delivery and co-activation, that can bring the field past um, a turning point, a so-called flashpoint. That's, in fact, how we got the name for the company. We think the field is, is poised for that, and we can bring the field into a phase transition where cancer vaccines can be a mainstream therapy. And, you know, thinking about that a little bit in a little bit of deeper level, um, you know, as Chad said, we think that there are some cases where, where vaccines can be a standalone monotherapy that will have benefit on their own, perhaps up to... Up to um, curative benefit in certain cases. Uh, but beyond that, I think the argument of cancer vaccines being part of the repertoire is you know, something that I would be confident will happen in the coming years. Um, cancer vaccines fundamentally boost immune response, which can be used in combination with many other therapeutic approaches, you know, whether it's a backbone therapy post-surgery, whether it's preventing risk of recurrence in high-risk patients, or whether it's as an adjuvant or add-on to other immunotherapies, I think you know, cancer vaccines um, can and will be part of the mainstream therapeutic repertoire against cancer. And I think the missing link to bring it to that stage has been uh, this technology platform that can really put together the components in a way that they yield a coordinated and more potent effect uh, to yield an anti-cancer immune response. So, uh, you know, success looks like bringing these to patients, bringing them to patients uh, ultimately in a broad-based way and making it part of, of the uh, primary uh, repertoire of, of our armament arm, against cancer that uh, you know, can have a real impact on patients. We're so excited to hear more and then follow the journey alongside. Uh, Chad, it's been a pleasure discussing the future of your research, both for the Merkin Lab, the INN. I would love to discuss and continue the conversation and take some time to chat more about your entrepreneurial journey. In addition to your pioneering work in chemical biology, you've been a longtime academic entrepreneur, co-founding numerous companies, including Nanosphere, AuraSense, TerraPrint, Azul3D, Flashpoint, Therapeutics, so among many others. As a serial entrepreneur, how, how do you think about translating technologies from academia? Well, again, I, I, we, at the university, we pursue um, interesting problems. Uh, we, we, we don't try to develop technologies uh, from an engineering perspective, we approach it from a scientist perspective. What's different about miniaturization? I kind of articulated that at the beginning of the podcast. Those differences, though, often lead to the ability to create technologies that don't exist today. And so when we make a discovery and then we see a path to develop a technology that can make an impact in whatever field, 
we put together the teams. That's what the IIN is really good at. The teams of folks, the scientists, the engineers, the medical types, the Kellogg business school types, uh, to begin to look at how we can do that most effectively uh, to create something that'll make a difference. Um, and we've gotten better and better at that. Uh, I mean, you know, everybody knows in business that experience is is important. You can you can knock it out of the park uh, on your first run, but oftentimes uh, it takes multiple uh, passes to to really hit it. Um, and and that's one of the, one of the great things uh, about these current companies is we you know we we've learned a tremendous amount. I've taken a couple companies public. I've seen a company fail, uh, and I, I've seen uh, both the right things to do and the wrong things to do. And that combined knowledge set uh, has been really important. The other thing is I value really smart people around me. I've had great uh, academic mentors, people like Bob Langer, who's a great entrepreneur in his own right, you know, started Moderna among, among many other companies. Really good friend, was actually talking to him this morning. Craig Mundy, who was uh, Bill Gates' right-hand man for a while at Microsoft, he's taken an interest in our companies uh, and, and provides a lot of input. Uh, and Eric Schmidt, uh, uh, many of these folks I, I, I got to meet throughout my career and, and became friends with because of because of my career and, and, and who I was. So it's it's kind of uh, challenging to say, OK, you should go do this as a new entrepreneur. A lot of it is you have to use what you have uh, and, 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 and maximize it, uh, but keep knocking on doors and keep finding smart people like Adam uh, to ultimately help you and, and, and good things will happen. As a continuation of this, that that learned experience you chatted about. Um, within your own lab itself, how do you really foster a culture of entrepreneurship within your own lab? You'll, you'll find this surprising. I, I, I don't try to. Um, I, in fact, I, I make it clear that your job is not to develop technologies for my businesses. Your job is to figure out how things work. Your job, if we're developing a new technology after we understand how things work, is to make that beat benchmarks, beat existing benchmarks uh, out there. Um, and, and I, I divorce the two in that regard. Now I tell them all, and everybody is told that you know I have conflicts. Uh, they have conflicts because many of them are inventors. Many of them actually have, have made a lot of money by being part of inventions that have made a lot of money over the years, which is kind of an interesting thing. You, you go to graduate school and you know you're getting paid this very low salary, and then all of a sudden you get sent uh, uh, six-figure checks because you're 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 <laughs> you're you're, you're a co-inventor on 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 an invention that's part of a therapeutic, for example. It's, it's I think it's probably a shocker to many of them. Uh, because that's not why you come here. You come here to do science. Uh, and I teach them how to be the best scientists they can be uh, and put them in a position then to succeed with that later in life. They can watch and absorb what they want in terms of how I do things, but I, I try not to push uh, what we're doing on the startup side of things over to them. Now, there are oftentimes talented students that I look at and I say, hey, when you graduate, would you like to be a part of this? And, and we might start for, uh, forming interactions with people like Adam early on uh, so that uh, Adam can see how good they are. They can understand what we're trying to do. And they either buy into the dream and we buy into their capabilities or not. And it, it ends up being a, a natural resource uh, for them and for, 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 for the companies. Yes. And my, my own thinking about the, the uh, benefit that you can enact from the industry side of the, the fence has certainly evolved. And I think the field has evolved um, quite a bit as well in terms of how to think about uh, entrepreneurship. So looking at the history of, of, of translational science, you've described that back in the day, commercializing startups was considered dancing with the devil. Uh, can you describe, though, how, how this culture in academia has changed and how do you think the culture will evolve? Uh, over the next few decades and more as, as additional spin-outs continue to translate from academia? 
Oh, it's it's funny. At, 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 when I first started here, it was dancing with the devil. I mean, you would never tell people you were doing this. If you did, you would be shunned. Now they give you medals for it. <laughs> so there's been an incredible transition uh, over the last uh, 25 years. Uh, people have recognized that, hey, this is really an important part of the ecosystem. Uh, most industrial labs, the, the blue sky, the, 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 the let's try to discover type part of companies have disappeared. Bell Labs is nothing what it used to be. DuPont is nothing what it used to be. There are very few major industrial discovery labs. Um, so that means that universities and government labs have really filled that hole. That's great. I mean, it turned out to be a fantastic opportunity for startups. So now there's this incredible focus on startups because that's where all the innovation is. The big companies just go in and buy the startups if they want a, a new technology. That's certainly the, the, the pharmaceutical play. Uh, but they, they let you de-risk it by going through the path of taking it from the animal to the small animal to the clinic and, and validating it through, through trials to a point where they think it's worth pulling the trigger on. Uh, and then, then uh, uh, you either become say no and become a independent entity or, or, or you move into the bigger company. Um, and uh, I think that's actually a really interesting and healthy type of, of, of dynamic. And it's gotten uh, academics like me uh, to think a little bit more about problem solving than we normally would. I certainly have gotten better. And I think it's made my science a lot better. I think about the science all the way back when we're developing a technology. What is the scientific foundation for each of these technologies we're developing? Why was it enabled? What was the aha moment? Um, and uh, uh, it, it's, it's, it's turned out to be, I think, a really good thing for certainly the university, a good thing for me and a good thing for the country. And, and what advice would you give to rising star professors who are considering entrepreneurializing their labs? Is, is that something that um, kind of naturally emerges as a consequence of solving scientific problems? Or is it something that uh, you should bake into how people build their labs kind of at an earlier stage? You know, I think you have to, to uh, you know, it's kind of like saying I want to be an NBA player. Uh, you, 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 you have to know you have the skill set and the ability to do it first and foremost. If you don't, you still can be part of it, but you're going to be a contributor. I mean, Craig Mundy, a uh, really good friend, he, you know, he likes to talk about it in terms of you know, how the population is separate. He, he thinks only 2% of the population or less has the entrepreneur gene. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but I think it's the right way to think about it. There's certain people that, that are really set out to do this. And, and you know, if, he, if I see somebody... Uh, who I think is 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 really quite good, then I'll spend a lot of time with them trying to coach them. If I see somebody who I think is barking up the wrong tree, you know, I'll still try to help them. But I, I tell them, you know, maybe you ought to think about how you could contribute in a different way. You, you might be better, you know, running a lab within a larger company as opposed to starting a company. Adam, as you know, it's it, it's a tough road. And, and, and so many things have to converge um, uh, to, to make it work. It's first and foremost critical that the person trying to do it has all the skill set and experience uh, to make a good go at it. And they still fail sometimes, oftentimes. As we're coming to a close here, one quick question. Just look in the future. We, we'd love to learn, Chad. What's coming next for the Merkin Lab? Well, um, we're moving heavily, as I said, down the vaccine space. Um, uh, but uh, the second thing I'm, I'm really bullish on is... Uh, uh, we developed these tools uh, now 20 years ago, uh, a technique called dip pen analithography. It was uh, touted as the world's smallest pen. 
uh, the AFM was developed to get topological maps of surfaces to kind of measure the bumps and valleys on a surface on the nanoscale. We figured out how to turn that into a local chemical synthesis tool. Uh, and that made big headlines back then. Lots of people got excited about it. It became a tool that was used all over the world, became commercialized um, and still is used all over the world. But then over time, we began to get the engineers involved and said, hey, how do we take that from a, a single tip to hundreds of thousands to millions of tips? Uh, and now we have arrays that have uh, millions of pens that can simultaneously print on surfaces on the nanoscale and locally control chemical synthesis. Now you might ask, what is that good for? Well, you can build these chips that are incredibly high density, uh, that have more materials than man has cumulatively made to date on one chip. And to, that, that's important if you want to look at all the different combinations of materials. For example, if you're looking for new catalysts, looking, looking for new solar cells, looking, looking for ways to convert CO2 into high value products with electrocatalysts, you know, our, our world depends upon materials. So, so, so I'm really excited about that. But the other thing is, it turns out that that is probably the greatest source of big data in the materials discovery space, because you've got everything confined to one chip and you can study it in mass. And you can use that then to inform artificial intelligence algorithms in such a way that you can make predictions about materials discovery that rapidly accelerate how we find those next materials that make a difference. So I'm excited about that. Uh, they, they, they are, that's Matik. They, they will be synthesizing over a trillion new materials by the end of next year, which is a game changer when you think that the world to date has synthesized less than a million. That's an absolutely crazy step up, Chad. And I think that leads well into some of our quick uh, wrap-up questions as we come to a close. So one question we do like to ask our guests comes from Nobel laureate Dennis Gabor, who says the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. As you've shared more about uh, the incredible work that you've done and that your companies are doing, we'd love to hear what does inventing the future mean to you? I think inventing the future means solving uh, problems and needs of society today, uh, uh, and, and and those needs change with time. Uh, what what I find is, you know, a lot of people will look at technology development and go, "Oh my God, you know," but what about the harm it can do? Well, there, there's some truth to that, right? I, I I would not be honest if 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 I said some of the things we develop couldn't be used for uh, nefarious purposes. But I'd rather be first. I'd rather be the the group that that has it the group that, that that controls it, the group that can use it to do good, and the group that can use it to make the future better. And, and that's what we've tried to do in, in, in all of our uh, uh, technology development uh, exercises. Um, and, and so uh, uh, whatever problem we encounter in the future, uh, their nanotech will, will be a major contributor to the solution. And as we think about some of those challenges, what would, in your opinion, be the grand challenges facing the life sciences in the next maybe 30 years? Uh, flashpoints on it. Uh, can, can, can we, can we uh, create a, a much more effective, milder way of, of treating aggressive forms of cancer uh, to not only extend lives, but to, to, to cure the disease in many forms? Um, and can we do that on a, on a short timeline? And, and I think we're in, a, we're in a strong position to do that. Uh, you look on the CRISPR side of things, uh, I, gene editing, uh, uh, that's a fantastic technology. Uh, I, I was involved in the early uh, CRISPR case uh, on the Broad side, so that's a full disclosure. But that comes down to delivery. That technology 
from a, a medical standpoint is effective, not just because we understand CRISPR, that's foundational and fundamental, uh, but being able to get all those components delivered uh, 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 to cells in a way that uh, maximizes gene editing capabilities uh, is, is absolutely essential uh, to, to, to maximize uh, it, its, its widespread uh, utility in, in, in the medical sector. Uh, nanotech is gonna play a huge role in making that happen if it happens. And we're excited to see it come to pass. But as we wrap up, having been an inspiration for so many listeners in our audience and building off your quote from Richard Feynman earlier, we'd love to flip it around. Who inspires you and why? Ah, so many people inspire me. Look, I, I mentioned some of them. Uh, uh, Bob Langer, uh, I, I've loved. I ne never worked with him. I met him. I thought he was just a incredible person and, and, and somebody who is driven by many of the same things I'm driven by. Uh, a guy named Harry Gray at Caltech. Uh, again, he's my academic grandfather. Hadn't met him for many years. Met him and and, and just thought this guy really understands science at a level that that one is exciting and and, and inspirational. Uh, and he connects with people uh, really really well. I like to have fun. Uh, in addition to to trying to make all these, I don't I don't I don't like work to be work. <laughs> uh, I, I I I think of work as 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 fun, uh, which is why I like to say I've never worked a day in my life. Um, uh, but uh, that's because I just I, I enjoy uh, really smart people engaging with with folks that are like minded uh, that challenge me uh, uh, to 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 raise my game to 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 think about things in different ways and those type of people are all over the place and then there are others there are students we have Michelle Toplensky uh, who, who's a co-founder of Flashpoint she's now a, a, a she was a postdoc in my lab she's now a professor at, at BU. She's inspirational. She's a lot younger than me, but but you know I, I see uh, how smart she is, how dedicated she is, how hardworking she is, how articulate she is. And I think back in my career, I go, I wasn't that way <laughs> back then. It's incredible uh, how sophisticated some of these students are. That's an inspirational thing for me too. As we come to a close, do you have any additional thoughts you'd like to share with our audience, uh, Chad? How about starting with you? Look, I, I think that that uh, this is an exciting time in science and in medicine. Um, uh, the the world should be very bullish uh, on on biotech after coming uh, through the, the 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 COVID era. Um, uh, I think the world has seen uh, how important it is to be able to rapidly put together structures that uh, treat disease. It's a shame it it got very political, and I don't place blame on uh, either side of the aisle, but. I, it's indisputable that we, as a country, we're, we're far better off having scientists rapidly developing these types of tools and getting them into the clinic so that they could minimize the impact of, of, of the disease. And uh, we're going to do the same, uh, but I think even in a grander way in the cancer space. Excited to see it coming. Adam, any closing thoughts on your side? Well, it's been a pleasure to share with your audience our, our vision for Flashpoint at such an early stage of our journey. And now that we have this on the record, um, we can hold us to our commitment of, of bringing these technologies to patients in the coming years and, and trace the uh, journey from here to uh, achieve the potential that, we, that we're aiming for. And I'm always happy to uh, talk with, with anybody who uh, shares shares the the vision that we have and and really you know interested in contributing in, in any way uh, through conversations um, informally um, moral support whatever 
Uh, so uh, feel free to email me. My email is adam at flashpoint.bio. And um, we'd love to engage with, uh, with, with people out there to make this a reality. Really, really appreciate that message, Adam. And excited to have you back on the podcast in a few years to talk about Flashpoint success. Chad, Adam shared with our listeners, how can they learn more about your work? Uh, we we uh, have a very active uh, social media presence. Uh, you search Chad uh, Merkin or Chad Nano, the first thing you're going to find on the web uh, and uh, become a follower of the IIN uh, and uh, participate uh, in, in a lot of our uh, outreach activities. We hold the, one of the world's largest conferences every year uh, at Northwestern in, in nanotech. We've been doing it for uh, 16 years. And it attracts uh, unbelievable people, including, I think, 11 Nobel Prize winners. Uh, and, of course, these types of activities. I, I want to thank both you guys for, for providing such a service to the community. This is uh, pretty spectacular to be able to talk about this and, and have it uh, presented in an interesting way to, to a lot of interested listeners. Thank you, Chad, for those kind words. And to you and Adam both for an absolutely fantastic episode. We are very grateful for your time and look forward to having you back on the show again soon. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.